The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, welcome to Barron's Live. I'm Brett Ahrens at Market Watch, and we've got quite an interesting uh, show for you today. It is not news for anyone that the markets have been very turbulent this year. Stocks are down, US stocks, international stocks, the bond market has crashed. It seemed like there's almost nowhere to hide. However, um, we do have an interesting guest today. Steve Russell is the investment director of Rufferin Company, an investment uh, firm in London that I've actually followed for many years. And Ruffer does things differently from many other fund managers. And this year, they seem to have beaten the gloom. So I've got Steve here to find out how they've done it and what they expect next. Steve, great. Uh, welcome to welcome to Barron's Live. Hi, Brett. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Uh, real pleasure to be uh, talking on the show today. Well, look, thanks for coming. Um, quick, quick question. Your benchmark fund, which I think is rougher total return, how, how have you done this year? Yeah, um, so far in 2022, our core funds are up somewhere between three and five percent. Uh, that's in sterling terms. But when we are offering our core funds to international investors, we just hedge the return. So actually, oh, okay. in any currency. So basically, we're up sort of three, four, five percent over this year, despite the fact that both bonds and equities have fallen sharply. Wow. You did this back in the financial crisis, didn't you? You guys were up when everyone else was down. Yeah. I mean, it's all about what Ruffer is set up to do. Our entire purpose is to deliver positive returns, whatever happens in markets, and therefore to protect our investors' capital, whether there's a financial crisis or not. Mm. And when you look back over that, we've been going about 25 years now. And so we've been through the 2000-2003 tech bubble, uh, the 2008 financial crisis, if you count it, the mini COVID crash back in March 2020, and this year. And in every single one of those crises uh, in financial markets, our funds have been able to deliver positive returns. So our aim is to protect people's capital when things get difficult. But also we've been able to make a positive return through that period. Okay. Now, here's the the interesting question. What have you done this year that has helped you make money when pretty much the the rest of us have all lost money? What have you been doing? Yeah, it starts with our overall investment approach, which is quite different from other people, which is to always hold some form of fear asset or protection in our portfolio alongside always owning some what we call greed uh, investments, uh, essentially equities. So we always hold some protection. So we're slightly cheating the system in always being a bit ready for something going wrong. But in the run up to this year, when it's been so difficult for people in financial markets, doesn't matter whether you're in equities, whether you're in bonds or almost any financial asset, we had an advantage, I suppose, in that we had foreseen that inflation was likely to return to the system. Now, if I'm really honest, 
we foresaw this rather earlier than it actually happened. So we've been ready for inflation to return to the system for well over five years, if not a little bit longer. Um, and that meant we had protections in the portfolio that would uh, help to deliver a positive return when other assets were falling. Specifically, it was clear to us that if inflation came back into the system, then the first thing would be the Federal Reserve and central banks around the world would have absolutely no option but to raise rates. And that was something essentially that markets just didn't understand. They didn't think inflation could come back and they didn't anticipate uh, interest rates going up. So the core protection we had coming into this year was actually interest rate options. And because volatility had been so low on interest rates for so long, then they were really cheap to buy a year or two ago. Uh, so they've delivered a positive return. The next step is one of our uh, mainstay in our protection assets, which is we're always nervous of credit markets. And so we've had a significant holding in credit protections, uh, credit default swaps uh, okay. across different areas. And that's delivered a positive return as things have got tougher there. Though, quite importantly, there's been no disaster in credit. Mm -hmm. So we think we might make more money if things get worse there. And then I suppose the last part of what's actually worked for us this year is our equities. Mm -hmm. We cut back our equities to a record low level for us, back beneath 20%, where we're normally 30, 40, wow. 50, and made sure that we had nothing at all in the epicenter of what we considered to be a bubble. So no tech no NASDAQ, no FANGs, and instead we focused on value and energy. And those stocks are actually probably marginally up year mm. to date. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the things, the two things that we've always known or learned about is get the right protection assets, and those change through every single cycle, but also avoid being in the epicenter of what was the last bubble. Now, let me ask you a question. In the financial crisis, um, gosh, 15 years ago now, are you saying you had you cut your equity exposure this time around lower than you had in 2007? Yeah. Uh, wow. In 2007, we probably had 25%, maybe 30%, which was the lowest then. Uh, this time around, for specific reasons, we actually went lower. And the two reasons are, first of all, we could see that it was really difficult to find anything that would offset equity losses in a world which we've seen this year where bonds no longer offset equities in fact they make it worse then that whole construct of various forms of bond protection wouldn't work and then the other problem we faced is we are we were afraid and we're still afraid that there could be a further liquidation event in markets mm. Mm -hmm. And this is really all about the fact that for many years, people have been piling into equities and making good money because there was no alternative. Basically, interest rates right. zero. Yeah. We're a bit worried, to put it mildly, that um, if as interest rates, in certainly in the US and let's say money market funds start to offer 4% plus, there could be a stampede out of equities of the size that we saw stampeding in over the last couple of years. So we've actually, short term, taken a particularly aggressive low equity position. Okay. Now, look, let me get uh, ask you about one other thing, which is uh, fascinating. I know that you guys um, came into the year owning a lot of tips and linkers uh, for the audience. 
linkers are the British equivalent of TIPS. They're inflation-protected uh, treasury bonds. In fact, linkers, uh, index-linked uh, UK bonds, UK government bonds, were the first inflation-protected bonds. Uh, America basically came in in the late 90s with their own version. And you would have thought when everybody um, suddenly discovered that there was a lot of inflation, that the uh, value of inflation-protected bonds would have gone up. And instead, uh, they've been pretty much a disaster for most of the year. Is that, is that right? And why is that? Yeah. Um, and it's quite interesting. I mean, first of all, we did foresee inflation coming. And secondly, as you rightly say, we put in part of our protection wasn't just interest rate options, but to own long duration inflation protected bonds. And inflation duly arrived. And those long uh, duration bonds, be it in the UK or in the US, have performed as if they had no inflation protection whatsoever. Yeah. And they've just behaved like a conventional bond. <clears throat> now, that was a surprise to us. Fortunately, make, getting that bit wrong was completely offset by the other protections we had. But I have said you know, that this year, I don't think we've ever been so right and so wrong in, the, in one year. Mm -hmm. Now, why has this happened? First of all, I think what's happened is when you look at inflation expectations, especially as the Fed look at them, maybe on a five-year, five-year forward, so five years or 10 years out, yep. despite inflation going from roughly naught or two to almost 10 and now what seven, that expectation has not shifted at all. Yep. So yep. what we've seen is nominal rates, interest rates go up, bond yields go up, and there have been no offset with the inflation expectation, which has left uh, inflation-protected long-duration bonds just acting as if they were uh, nominal bonds. Nominal bonds. Let me yeah. ask you a question about that. We've actually written about that at MarketWatch quite, uh, quite a, uh, a fair number of times for over a year about the fact that uh, the bond market's inflation forecasts or inflation expectations uh, are actually, I think, lower than they were in the spring. And they certainly haven't reflected the inflation panic everywhere else. Why is that? Why do you think that is? And do you think that that's going to change? Yeah, I think, well, the reason is twofold. First of all, the markets continue to have complete faith that the Fed and other central banks will bring inflation back to target. And we don't think that's likely. The main reason we think it's not likely is that once the inflation genie is out of the bottle and you get the first impacts of short-term supply disruption, et cetera, then ongoing inflation really requires higher wages. And what we've seen most obviously in the States, but now spreading across the West and in the UK where we're starting to have record numbers of strikes as well as high wage settlements, is higher wages and wage inflation, 5 6% looks to us to be embedding inflation into the mm. system so that that target of roughly 2% that all the central banks seem to think they will miraculously hit within about 12 to 18 months looks really completely unrealistic to us. Mm. What we do see is, we think the market's right that inflation has probably peaked, certainly mm. in the US, but so there's relief on that, and we can understand that. And we think bond markets are more, have some attraction on what they're pricing in in terms of interest rates at the moment. But we don't see inflation coming back to target. So 
back to four or five percent yes but okay. then staying there and that mm -hmm. we start to shift expectations out in the future okay. um the other reason that these uh inflation protected bonds haven't worked is a lot of the market has never lived in inflation or high mm -hmm. interest rates uh, they don't really know how it what it's like and so that faith that central banks can control inflation is embedded and it's not that central banks are impotent in controlling inflation you know of course the fed can jack interest rates up high enough for long enough to drive up unemployment and therefore push down wage inflation but we just don't think the political system in any of the western democracies will allow them to do that mm. and therefore we think the end result will be a longer period of higher inflation and a lot of inflation volatility, which will start to spook markets. Okay, two questions for you. First is, um, well, actually, the, the main one is, why will that continue uh, rather than the long-term deflationary trend that we've seen in the West for several decades? Once we're past this period of dislocation, following uh, the COVID lockdowns and all the disruptions, why wouldn't we get back into a long-term deflationary trend with, for example, more robotics replacing um, expensive labor? The second question, sort of uh, following on from that, is: Don't you think? Do you think that the expected recession uh, that we're supposed to be getting next year is going to knock inflation on the head? Yeah. So I think the long-term inflation picture is really interesting. Um, I'll put up a slide here that uh, gives some indication of what we're thinking what we saw over the last actually probably 40 years was falling inflation falling interest rates and therefore a goldilocks period as such for financial markets where almost any asset could go up in value right. and i've been very lucky that's most of my career so <laughs> uh, that's a, a fortunate position we think we're moving into a very different regime going forward and that's one where something that everyone will have seen recently, this both shows UK and US inflation, doesn't yet show the peak in there. But that long period of low inflation has essentially ended. Yeah. What's really interesting okay. is if you look back at traded goods inflation, so everything that we've been buying from on the internet, from China, from all of that stuff, be it consumer goods or industrial goods, the picture was one of deflation from a roughly the late 1990s through till about 2015. Yep. And then from 2015 to 2018, that deflation was eroded and went away. And mm. we ended up with no more price cuts coming through. We know what right. drives that deflation. That was globalization, China, yep. the opening up of labor forces, uh, the Internet, all of those factors were coming through. And interestingly, pre-COVID, they all ran out of steam. And then on top of that, we've got the COVID shortages, a complete, or not complete, but the beginnings, thanks to Russia, Ukraine, China, of a deglobalization starting to happen. Right. So it's pretty clear that we can see it being more difficult to uh, manufacture offshore, etc. And at the same time, what we've also seen, and it's starting to become clear, most obviously in energy, is that we went through a really nice period of everything being cheap and we didn't reinvest 
to actually yeah. make sure we could keep it cheap. So oil investment was starved, and that's fine because we want to, you know, avert climate change. But we didn't build enough renewables either, yeah. so we ended up stuff. So we think that underlying inflation beat, uh, sort of drumbeat, mm -hmm. is actually now positive. And then you add on what has been a long, long period of real wages falling mm. in the Western world that's beginning to be addressed and needs to be addressed. And some fairly mysterious labour shortages, be it because of COVID, be it long COVID, be it health issues, be it in the UK, uh, immigration and Brexit. But there's clearly not enough workers to go around anymore. And a lot of people have voluntarily left the workforce. So now we think inflation doesn't come back to target and it's wage driven above all else. Right. Going to your second point, uh, recession next year. Yeah, pretty likely. Mm -hmm. it's really complicated because if you've got inflation, let's say it's still at 5% then it's quite difficult to get negative nominal GDP growth. Of course. But in terms of real GDP, yeah, we think certainly Europe and the UK, because of the energy difficulties they've got, are probably already in recession and will continue. In the US, more touch and go, but the Fed is going to be at least determined to look as if they're fighting inflation with everything. So we think it is pretty nailed on that rates, interest rates will go 4% plus. And we think if that doesn't start to generate a, a recession, they might have to go further. Yeah. So the Fed in this particular sort of iteration of what they're doing will probably have to look at least quite tough. But the thing to remember is in both sides of the Atlantic, the central banks are essentially saying we'll get inflation back to target. Oh, by the way, We'll do that using negative real interest rates. They're going to mm -hmm. keep the level of interest rates beneath the level of inflation. That's right. never worked before. Oh, okay. So essentially, what you're you're saying that they're going to have to raise rates well above the inflation rate to uh, to stop to really rein in inflation, and that's effectively politically or economically impossible, or unfeasible. Yeah. So it's not that they can't. Yeah. But they won't. Right. Um, and so we can see the uh, in America, for example, the Fed is almost perfectly willing to cause an uptick in unemployment and some job losses and a bit of a recession, especially if it's still nominal growth. But we don't think that's going to be enough to really do the job. Hmm. And therefore, we think they will probably chicken out or be told to chicken out from actually going the whole hog. We essentially don't believe that Powell is the equivalent of Paul Volcker. Right. Um, but he's doing a very good job at trying to convince markets <laughs> and he might get away with it. So for us, it's if there's a recession, then um, that'll be because interest rates at the level they are predicted to be by sort of first quarter of next year are already high enough to do the damage. And that's not unlikely in a world where everyone's been so used to borrowing for free. Yeah. Uh, if there isn't, then almost worst case, because then the inflation's still there. And um, what the Fed then have to come out and decide, do we go up further or do we accept uh, the fact that inflation is along is above target? Right. And I think when that's the 19, that's the 1970s scenario, really, isn't it? 
similar except the numbers aren't as big right okay so but but it is essentially a very similar situation and i think if you look back what's happened is over the last 20 or 30 years since inflation targeting came in that was against this drumbeat of disinflation coming from globalization mm -hmm. tech etc yeah. and technology and innovation and central banks were desperately trying to get inflation effectively up to target and that target was too high right so they had rates too low for a long time we've now flipped into a new regime where essentially the target is too low and they're probably going to have rates that are too high because they're desperately trying to get inflation down to two in a world where the underlying inflation pressures are higher than that right so our view would be raise the inflation target yeah. but that would have quite an impact on bond markets and uh, expectations so i think they'll be quite wary okay let me stop you there i just want to remind our viewers that um we love love it when you file questions you can uh do that through the the interface and um we're going to ask we've got a whole bunch of questions from viewers so far and uh if you have questions uh, let us know send them over now, Steve, what I want to ask you before we get on to the future is I want to ask um, what the heck was going on with the Liz Truss quasi quatting uh, panic in September? I think a lot of people, particularly in America, were uh, astonished to see. Um, I mean, nobody had, I don't think many people had uh, England uh, or London as uh, in the office pool for vortex of um, a government semi emerging markets style run on the currency. Can you tell me what was going on there, what you guys saw during that uh, period of a couple of weeks of chaos? And were you able to uh, take advantage of it um, financially? Yeah, I mean, to put it mildly, it's been quite an interesting period <laughs> over the last, in the UK uh, as we changed prime ministers and uh, have the odd crisis here. What effectively happened was, for whatever reason, uh, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, almost without checking with the Treasury, or and certainly not without checking what markets might think, decided to launch unfunded tax cuts of a size that wasn't enormous, mm -hmm. but in a world where central bank and government uh, bond, sovereign bond credibility is a bit fragile because they're all offering negative real rates on their bonds, us in the UK, Europe, uh, the US, then it beca suddenly became clear that this was a store that would break the camel's back mm. and that bond, mark bond markets weren't willing to tolerate this. Interestingly, when people talk about bond vigilantes, yep. they're not all powerful, but they're very powerful when they've been hurt. So yep. bond vigilantes were very powerful in the 80s after they'd lost all their money in the 70s. Yep. And now they're quite powerful now because governments need to borrow money right. and bond investors have lost lots of money. However, what really ticked, kicked it off in the UK was an illiquidity crisis within the pension funds. Mm -hmm. So global investors looked at what was going in, on in the UK and was essentially saying, that's not sensible. It's not a crisis, but I want a higher yield for that. Right. And then that kicked off a vicious circle of selling by pension funds who'd leveraged their holdings in sovereign bonds, especially UK gilts, government bonds, uh, because they wanted to 
um, basically get the right in, uh, interest rate protections and long-term um, ability to immunize their returns against pensions they have to pay, but they didn't have enough money. So they used leveraged okay. positions and the margin calls came in big time on those. And that forced them to be sellers of government bonds, even though it was the government bonds that they wanted. And that right. drove prices down dramatically until the Bank of England uh, intervened. Were you able to get any uh, uh, deals in, the, in yeah. the crisis? We were in a fortunate position in that because we already knew these assets and these investments, especially the long duration uh, inflation protected bonds, and we knew what we wanted long term as a holding in them for our portfolio. Then when they failed dramatically, not only did we have some protection against the losses because of interest rate options, yep. but we knew what our ideal target was and roughly what price we think they should eventually trade at. So on effectively one day, the uh, very long, longest duration UK gilts pretty much halved before the Bank of England stepped wow. in. Uh, we were able, before the Bank of England stepped in, to buy a bit. There wasn't a lot available, but we bought what we could. And within a day or so after the Bank of England had supported the market, it was stabilised and those purchases had gone back up to more than where they started, so had more than doubled. So it wasn't a huge impact, but it was pleasant to be able to uh, be able to take advantage of that sort of volatility. But for us, it's just one of the risks that might pop up anywhere when we have these significant illiquidity events in a world where rates are now no, no longer zero. Okay, now let me fire some questions at you sent in by, by um, Barron's Live viewers. Um, Stu asks, does big tech make a comeback in 2023? Right. Um, yes. The answer from us would be no. Right. And the reason is quite straightforward. We don't think that the fall in big tech uh, share prices we've seen this year is enough to undo the valuations that they've got to. In our view, with interest rates and inflation going to be higher than anything around 2%, then the discount rate you need to apply to future growth stocks, especially big tech, will have to rise and the P has got to come down. So we don't, we think the fall in sort of the NASDAQ or the FANGs is about halfway there. Right. And then okay. the second point is that um, we believe that the uh, likely recession is going to start to impact on these stocks. Given a perfect example, if you look at uh, Google's dominance of advertising along with Facebook or Meta, um, in the last cycle, when advertising was uh, hit because of a recession, they were still growing their share. Mm. Now they're dominant, so we think the profits fall. Uh, so for us, we're still avoiding big tech, and what we like is the opposite. It's low. It, if big tech is low capital intensive, high margin. Yep. We like high capital intensive but already invested cyclical value and okay. those we think are the places to be how much of that is energy probably about a third at the okay. moment but uh, the other areas it's things like cement steel uh all of those sort of agriculture all of those sort of industries all of which will have to invest further right. to comply with environmental issues but so 
they will but they are delivering goods that we now discover we just need and there's right. no longer over capacity in those markets okay if i ask if i broaden it beyond energy to resource stocks generally what percentage uh, of of those are resource stocks um yeah probably half Okay, okay. But, but there is a rump of those old industries yep. that are still there and still needed chemicals cement and steel if you're going to build wind farms you still need you need steel yeah you need, and those we think those are the most protected against inflation and are generally the businesses that flourish interesting i got some more questions and we're um we're as we're we're, we're running short on time i've always been the guest and everyone said, "Oh, we're running out of time," and I never believed them. But now that I'm, I'm, I'm the host, I realize how quickly the time goes when you're having a great conversation. Question from Andrew. Let me uh, summarize it. Um, do you receive? You see a recession next year? Given the level of global debt and the amount of leverage in the system, is there a significant risk of next year's recession being joined by a financial crisis? We'd say yes, mm. but. And uh, the reason we say yes is it's, we're not predicting a crisis, but we are very worried about the combination of a lot of illiqu illiquidity in private markets and all of those areas. And the fact that the pain of higher interest rates and as your guest says, and I think uh, exactly a lot of debt, it's not really being factored in. Most Most businesses were able to secure extremely cheap financing for at least a year or two a bit like mortgages and as that runs off especially in credit markets we think there's going to be some big problems so yeah we think there's definitely a risk of a crisis um and this would be a crisis where you can't really cut interest rates yeah. to solve yeah. it yeah. okay now my producer is telling me we're getting a little bit of extra time because we've got so many questions coming in um question from david how do you see the prospects for precious metals in 2023 and other particular mining stocks or ETFs are recommended? Let's focus on what do you think about precious metals, gold and others? Yeah, for us, we only really look at gold, but mm -hmm. uh, you can take that does have some translation into silver and others. And it's been an interesting one um, for the initial part of this this year, 2022, uh, gold was doing very well. Gold mining stocks were doing very well, partially because of uh, the geopolitical issues with mm -hmm. the dreadful war in Ukraine yeah. um, and also inflation. And then the fact that real interest rates were going up hit them just as it did long duration uh, bonds and inflation-linked bonds. So as an inflation protection, it's been gold has been better than most this year, but I think you still probably lost money and you certainly haven't protected yourself against inflation. Right. Part of that is because from... the dollar Sorry, was so strong. Yeah. And we think going into 2023 that the dollar is less likely to be strong. And right. we started to see that switch and people generally seem to agree with that. As the the rate of Fed uh, interest rate rises slows down, yeah. and that we so we're thinking gold is now looking quite attractive, and we've actually increased our gold weighting within our funds over the last month. So that would be one of our right. main inflation protections for next okay. year. What uh, what weighting is that, and do you use bullion or gold mining stocks? Um, the current weighting is probably gone from two to five percent okay. uh we're normally five to ten so there's more to go if we 
get up more optimistic. Yep. And we like a mix of both bullion and mining stocks. Okay. Okay. Now, Steve asks, or Lee and Steve ask, do you expect below average returns for American equity markets over the next 10 years? Um, and um, if, if you can go out that far. 10 years is a bit far and below average. So do we expect US equities to deliver a lower return for the next 10 years than they did for the last 10 years? Uh, definitely. Right. Uh, that's that's. That sort of goes with higher interest rates and inflation. I think more interesting is that we think the US indices, so the S&P, because it's still so dominated by the big tech stocks, right. it's going to struggle. And we think, just as we've seen this year, uh, some of the other markets that have been completely dwarfed by the US in the last decade will be better. So the UK, Japan, even Europe has outperformed the US despite having almost the worst time. So our fear is that the US overall index and therefore passive index funds will be dragged down for many years by what is a disappointing performance from the big tech stocks. Right. Now for US investors, um, so you've mentioned Europe, UK and Japan. For US investors who are keeping money, uh, some of their investments in the US, if you don't like the cap-weighted S&P, would you recommend mid-caps, small-caps, value, anything particular you like within the US? Yeah. Um, the Dow Jones would be a good start. And we've seen that's actually you know, got a lot of the names in the industries and the areas right. we like. Um, I guess value is what we're really looking at. And therefore, I don't know enough about the construction or the underlying elements of the mid cap small cap uh markets um mid and small caps have been hit and will do very well some point probably a bit early before the recession has even started right there right. so for us it's probably value over small caps for the time well, being interesting now i got questions from rick and mark that sort of go together mark asks have the market lows been made in the major indices? I'm guessing you think no. And Rick says, when is it safe to get back in the stock market? Mm. <laughs> so no, we don't think the lows have been made in the major indices, but some of the sub ones, the value areas might have been, though that's still got to be at risk for the next half, first half of next year. Mm. The problem with safe, being safe to get in back to the stock market, we've got to go back to... And we're back in a regime where it's not ever just safe. Yeah. With interest rate and inflation volatility, there's always going to be the risk that the Fed isn't there to bail you out. And therefore, getting the right balance and being much more active, I think, is going to have to be the key. It's just we don't think it's likely to be safe as such just to buy an index fund for some years. Right. Um, Outside of that, you know, it's going too far, but my sense is 2023 is going to be tricky, but mm. we could start to see some some attractions uh, at the back end of that year, especially if we get another 20% or so fall. Right. Um, question from Neil. What do you consider fear assets? Yeah, brilliant question. Fear assets for us are those any asset that we can find that will go up in value when the market, let's say the equity market, has a crisis and falls sharply. 
that changes over time. Back in 2000, 2003, when we managed to navigate the tech bubble uh, without losing money, then the fear asset we, of choice was long-dated conventional bonds. Hmm. And they did brilliantly because inflation was falling. Move forward to 2008, and our fear assets of choice were actually currencies, Swiss hmm. franc bonds and the Japanese yen, because they had been the carry trade currencies sold oh. because everyone was borrowing at naught in yeah. Japan and then reinvesting in the in the West, in the US, and they jumped dramatically. So you've got to find what, in each crisis, it's a different um, asset that's a fear asset. Right. Coming into this one, what we knew is it wouldn't be bonds mm -hmm. because rates were going to go up. So what we had to find was something else, and that drove us to unconvention, unconventional assets, be it volatility, uh, equity options, credit uh, protections, CDSs, mm. and interest rate options. So this time it's been different, and it's not to do with bonds. Right. And do you, do you still like those generally as as fear assets going forward, or do you think they 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 the um, the they're fully priced now? Uh, interest rate options, we think, have run their course. Um, credit protection, so CDS, we think is very attractive still, uh, especially if we do get into a recession. Recession plus higher interest rates is going to be very painful. Mm. Um, and a mix of equity put options, indices and single stocks within those big tech names, we also find attractive. So it's basically interest rate options done their job yep. and at the moment volatility is a bit too high to be an attractive uh offset mm -hmm. uh and the other one that might be interesting is uh yen currency as we start to move mm -hmm. towards a world where if things get very difficult the japanese might start repatriating a lot of dollar investments and that could mm -hmm. see a sharp reversal so actually the answer is trying to figure out what are the assets that people will be forced to buy or saturate hmm. and panic into when there's a general financial panic or crisis. Interesting. Got a question from Lloyd. How can a US-based person buy rougher LLC mutual funds? Um, the answer is not quite yet, but very soon. So we do have an investment trust that is a UK-quoted uh, equity. Uh, and therefore is available, but not easily available, we accept. We're opening an office in New York in February. And if you go to www.ruffer.co.uk, then you'll be able to get the details of who to talk to uh, there. It, it will be a gradual process, but then that's the way we address markets. We've never really looked internationally or certainly into the US before, uh, but we're now starting to think that could be interesting in the US for clients and investors too. Right. Look, that's all the time we have for today. Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been very interesting. Um, I'm sure Barron's Live uh, viewers have been as interested as I have. Um, and thanks very much. Uh, we hope you all will join our next episode tomorrow. Financial News Online editor Penny Sukraj will be joined by Rebecca Acheng Ajulu Bushel, who's the CEO of 10,000 Black Interns and a former Great Britain champion swimmer. Um, and they'll be having a discussion on what it takes to become a CEO at 28, along with a look at what 2023 
holds for young talent seeking to push past traditional barriers that hold them back. Thank you again for listening today. Stay safe and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.